1: Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Cheryl Crowder. Cheryl's an existential humanistic psychotherapist with over 30 years of experience in the field of depth psychology and human consciousness. With her background in theater arts, working with performance artists, visual artists, and creative people has inspired her for over 30 years. She welcomes those who are looking to make choices that create depth and meaning in their lives. Each one of us has an individual path, she says. Each therapy relationship is unique. Her private practice is in Albany and San Francisco with individuals, couples, and groups. She's facilitated a women's group for over 15 years and taught a graduate course in group process at John F. Kennedy University. She consults with licensed clinicians as well as supervising MFT interns, and she's a certified expressive arts therapist, and has facilitated groups, classes, and workshops in intuition, creativity, and the process of self-discovery, which will be relevant to our talk today. Her work's collaborative and interactive. She joined me on Good Grief in 2017 to talk about her first book, Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And today we'll be talking largely about her recently released book, Psychosocial Care of Cancer Survivors, a clinician's guide and workbook for providing wholehearted care. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you so much,
2: Cheryl. I really appreciate being here to talk with you.
1: Me too. I always feel like we're in an e- echo chamber. I had to wait till I was well, well into adulthood to meet someone else with oh my, my, my name. <laughs> so. I know, exactly. It's really spelled T H, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. spelled exactly uh-huh. the same. <laughs> and exactly. we do encounter each other uh, pretty often through, um, largely through the Women's Cancer Resource Center. And that's just really, really a blessing to know you that way. A little more closely than most of my guests.
2: Well, and it was great because we just in uh, you know about what a month or so ago we did the you know you were part of a panel that we did at uh, Women's Cancer Resource Center, talking about um, a lot of the work of the of healing and survivorship and. Um, you know, some of the difficulties and you know, challenges and, and uh, successes of, of the work that we do. And I think that was a really dynamic evening. And we made some money for the Women's Cancer Resource Center. Even Yay, better. always good. And, you know,
1: um, yeah. I, I love that we were all talking about survivorship and we all mm-hmm. had very unique. I felt the other you and the other people on the panel had quite mm-hmm. unique um, angles on survivorship, but mm-hmm. just in case yeah. there could be anyone out there who, who is a little uh, a little confused about the word survivorship, which of course some people don't like and many people do like and, right. you know um, right. could you just share how you're thinking of the period uh,
2: called survivorship? Sure, how I think about it, Um, It's quite personal because I I did have cancer, and I felt that it began when I finished treatment. Uh, Oftentimes people are told that you're a survivor the moment you have your diagnosis. Um, I have not found that personally, nor with other people that I've worked with, a particularly useful scale because at that point, you're diagnosed, you're heading for treatment. There's, there's not really much. It's just like, oh, please let me survive. I've got to survive feelings. But where I see it happening is right towards the end of treatment or right after treatment, where people feel as though they've just like, oh, well, what now? They've fallen off the ends of the earth. And there are still many issues. There's the emotional trauma that that has not been processed because you've been too busy, Trying to you know do treatment and go through all that, as well as you know there's physical issues that remain and these can remain you know for a long time. Hopefully they don't. So I I consider it um, the phase right again towards the end or finishing treatment. And by the way, I also consider survivors to include the partners of people who have been diagnosed, their family members. Their friends, their colleagues, I believe it's a it's a community of people who are deeply impacted and that that really needs to be recognized. The reason I, I continue to use the word survivor, yeah, there's a lot of controversy. Some people like this name, some people like that name. However, it is the name that's used. So I went with, okay, this is the name that's used. This is the recognizable name. So, um, I, I always encourage people whatever term you want to use for yourself. It's up to you, but I use it just because it's again it's it's the sort of the common currency,
1: right? You know, I'm thinking about. Uh, I agree. I was going to use the term myself, falling over a cliff. So <laughs> I agree mm-hmm, that there's mm-hmm. this kind of steep steep dive. Um, I'm thinking of mm-hmm. a client I currently have who finished treatment for o- ovarian cancer. Uh, which, of course, has completely profound long term impacts uh, yes. if you get the long term, you know. And yes, um, yeah. she was, she fell into a pretty deep depression r- uh, immediately after finishing mm-hmm. treatment, which to me made yes. total sense. I've seen it so, yes. so often. All her practitioners told her, We don't understand it. You should be fine.
2: Mm-hmm, hmm And that added not a layer. The practitioners, yeah, sometimes even the community around them. I think each, you know, I think people around uh, the, the survivor often feel like, oh, thank God it's over, and my God, you're okay, you're fine, you're fine. And there's so much pressure for people to come out of treatment and be fine or to find what's known, you know, a phrase that I, I, I'm not too crazy about, but it's called the new normal, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to do something profound, to be something profound, you know, go and run a race or do things like that. And, and there's just a tremendous oppression uh, for people, particularly who've gone through cancer treatment, to kind of get it together. And I think that that's a real disservice, and it, it, it blocks really being able to authentically process what has just happened.
1: I like that term, authentically process. Uh, I think it's what people like about support groups. We've we've both done them, and what people always say in the course of them is, "I can say things here I can't say anywhere," mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. because there's such a pressure to be positive uh, that I it think becomes can kind of unreal.
2: That the partners too, right? Well, the partners who feel a different kind of pressure partners, family members. Um, you know, uh, sometimes the informal caregivers, people who are not doctors, nurses, and so on, but informal caregivers who've cared for somebody during a cancer um, experience who also have a lot to process and who are rarely asked and oftentimes not even paid attention to. And this is changing, which is fantastic. I think that there's much more... information and consciousness around, wait a minute, we need to pay attention to to these people who have been right alongside with this trauma because they have their own trauma.
1: Well, and speaking from personal experience, there were aspects of my wife's cancer that she was actually not conscious for. Uh, You know, uh after surgery, when the dietician comes in and says, let's put her on a diet, Mm. and I'm screaming, she's Mm. dying, you know, she was asleep, (laughs) right? Um, So I think there's also experiences that the person who's ill has actually not had that the other person has. So that speaks right. to and what you're... And
2: vice versa, yeah. And vice versa, versa. So exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our,
1: our different yeah. angles on the experience. But you've written yeah. uh, this book specifically for practitioners. Uh, and yeah. I know you have uh, a little something in your prologue that kind of describes your motivation for doing it. Would you, would you read that for us? Yeah, I'd
2: like to read just a brief little paragraph here that I feel uh, is, is a good synopsis of, of this book. Uh, The healing relationship cannot be quantified because we are not in relationship with a statistic. It is not possible to measure the distress of the human heart by using a mathematical formula. And each individual story is unique regardless of the common threads that can be identified and traced to the larger population. Because quality of care cannot always be accurately measured, we are called on to trust and value what we cannot always quantify. While statistics are important when it comes to research, the National Cancer Institute reported that, in quotes, statistical trends are not usually applicable to individual patients. So while it's clear that there's a need for competent, evidence-based research to fund programs that address the impact and the challenges of cancer and provide funds for research, the need for quality emotional care for the physical, emotional, and psychic trauma that is carried by cancer survivors must be equally validated. And here's the part that I think is important to this book. Alongside the importance of person-centered care for patients is the need to attend to the concerns of healthcare clinicians in regard not only to their survival in a highly stressful field, but also to the advocacy for their professional growth and the support of the significance of personal meaning in the work that they have been called to do. You know, we're, we're both private
1: practice therapists. Maybe uh, there's a little more awareness, certainly you and I both have it, about how important self-care is in being able to show up authentically with the people that we mm-hmm. serve. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's a fight, though, that's still going on in medical environments. Um, well,
2: absolutely, because as psychotherapists, not only are we encouraged to do that, I, I think at this point we're expected, and I think it's a good expectation. We're, we're at The expectation that self-care, that, that that's a responsibility, and that we're, we're granted a lot of permission for that as psychotherapists. However, if you move into the more traditional medical setting, starting all the way from the training ground, medical school, that level of emotional support begins to, be, to disappear and, in fact, is often criticized and definitely yes. stigmatized. So these people go through, you know, and, and when you and I were talking the other day, after we talked, I realized that, that this, this book for clinicians is really a lot about the grief of clinicians as they face you know, burnout, loss of meaning, uh, and just without the support for their emotional well-being.
1: Uh, I agree with you about how that starts, maybe even before people choose the profession because it's a kind of, it can be a, a profession that's that you're called to to fix things, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Very, mm-hmm. very, very high percentage of doctors uh, and nurses Lost a parent as a child or another significant person. Um, right. Which, you know, you can imagine all kinds of reasons that would draw you to that profession, but part of it could be wanting to fix what was broken. And then you're in a training environment. I remember I worked with a physician once and we had to work on how she could remember and, and notice tiredness.
2: It mm-hmm, had been, mm-hmm. and she, yes.
1: she had cancer at the time. She had no way to register tiredness. And so she didn't know right. when to sit. She didn't know when to rest uh, because right. medical school had really drummed it out of her, uh, you know, 36-hour yes. shifts. And so um, it's a little bit of an uphill climb, yes?
2: It's, I think it's a tremendous uphill climb. I am seeing it start to shift Um you know, in terms of if you look online, there's a wonderful site called KevinMD and a lot of uh, physicians, social workers, medical professionals, you know, chime in. And almost daily, you'll see uh, somebody has written a blog or an article or something's coming up about this, um, about their, their distress. And, you know, what's interesting is that many of these uh, articles, blogs, et cetera, are written anonymously, which I think speaks again to the stigma of talking about this. And so my hope would be, can we just open up the conversation and begin to really talk about, you know, how to move forward with this? Yeah. You know, honestly, the statistics are in, in terms of burnout, physician suicide, the, the statistics are in, they keep rising every year with every new study. And it's like, people actually need to pay attention to these studies. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. and then as, as someone who works with cre- grief,
1: um, if you're talking specifically about medical um, practitioners who work with cancer, um, mm-hmm. there is no working with cancer without loss. That's right. Um, because everybody does not actually survive. And. That's right. Um, so it seems to me especially important, um, maybe in, in fields like that, um, I guess another would, would be gerontology, uh, you know, mm-hmm. fields in which you will lose your patients kind of ex- at an expected rate. Um, how yeah. do we stay human in a context where there's going to be loss
2: and take that seriously? Exactly. How do we stay human? How do we keep our hearts open um, and not harden them against the grief and the loss? And I think that's a, you know, that's a tough walk. I, I, you know, I really get how how tough a walk that is. And if, and if, if the clinician doesn't feel as though there's anybody they can turn to to express their grief and to be with their grief and you know, that it can be something that can be out rather than held inside and, and calcified. That, I think, is, is a solution, frankly. Um, Got to be able to talk about it and be with it and breathe through it, you know? Yeah.
1: And some people have, uh, I mean, I certainly didn't uh, didn't start out with that capacity. I lived with someone who was ill for, you know, almost a decade that that grew my capacity really Uh Uh yeah so i have Mm -hmm. i have a lot of compassion that um not everybody has had experiences where that is really welcomed inside of themselves let alone sharing with another person so when we come back from our break which we're, we're getting almost ready for our first break and when we come back from it um i'd really like to talk about how we get uh Clinicians on board with what you're talking about, which is not only mm-hmm. how to be compassionate with your patients, but mm-hmm. how to be compassionate with yourself. How to welcome your own yes. experience. I like yeah. that you have those two parts of your book. You know, because Absolutely. they
2: mm-hmm. seem
1: so inextricable to me. Yes,
2: how yes. can you do well, it yeah. for other
1: people if you can't do it for your for yourself?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so that's let's uh let's dive into that when we get back. Okay, sounds great. Yeah, great. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media, The Good Grief Page at Voice America. You'll also find a link to my my novel, An Ocean Between Them. It's just been named the August book at End of Life University for their book club, which is called A Year of of reading dangerously uh look up end of life university if you're many fantastic books on that on that list and you can sign up free and uh then you'll get notifications of the book of the month and discussion and that sort of thing so be sure to check that out and you can find cheryl crowder at www.cheryl crowder dot com. be back soon
0: p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Cheryl Crowder, the author of Psychosocial Care for Cancer Survivors. And uh, before the break, Cheryl, we were just beginning to talk about actually the content of your book, which um, is in two parts. Uh, One, how to offer authentic humanistic care to your patients, uh, and, Mm -hmm. and the other, how to be uh, human with yourself as a clinician how to how yeah. to uh, really care for the level of of feeling in your own self and your your own self care and um mm-hmm. that seemed just marvelous to me because uh, i i don't know how I would offer that to people if i didn't have con- some conception of offering it to myself um yes. but as we were saying that's kind of intrinsic in some ways to our profession but not so much to doctors training or nurses training so how do you think we Uh can begin to well let's talk some about what what you're seeing as the important elements of that and then how we can get medical environments to value that and and uh, say yes to it
2: well the first, I think there are two main headings and of course under that is very, you know, complicated, but I think education and collaboration. Mm. And in education, I would say that early on there be some form of education in the training of, of a physician, a nurse, uh, even in the social work realm. I have supervised some social workers who actually had not had a lot of emotional um education how to interview how to you know how to connect and so on so i think if you start with professionals when they're young and i do think this is the group that's going to change this by the way i think they're hungry for it and they know that in order for their long term viability and well-being they're going to need to do this so i think first we add education and the how i think we can show value in that is like i mentioned sort of in a in a like a little half-joking way before in the first part of our, our talk, you know, the statistics are speaking for themselves. And so I think we need to pay attention and help people pay attention. Look, here are the facts. And I feel like, you know, there's no need to do yet another study. The numbers are rising. You can see what this is. And the, you know, one of the ways to deal with it is to start educating people on self-care right from the beginning. mm and, and in that sense, you are communicating a valuing. We value you. And we want you to value yourself. So they start out right away with that. And then, you know, throughout careers, early career, mid-career, late career, the continued focus on self-care, what does that mean, how it changes, but mostly I think the valuing of it is what is, needs to really be highlighted. And then I think the second part that's vital is collaboration, professional collaboration, because I think that will help remove, hopefully remove, finally, the stigma around, being, around mental health issues, around depression, around anxiety, and move it from a pathological stance into, well, of course you feel upset and distressed. Maybe this month, you know, six of your patients died. You've had, like, no sleep for the last mm. 48 hours, et cetera, et cetera. It is, nothing is wrong with you that you feel this. And I think we need to get clinicians starting to talk to one another, um, you know, physicians, nurses, and so on. I also think that um, we need to, to create a referral system For those like the physicians, the specialists who do not have the psychological training, for instance, that you and I do, particularly in the, we work in cancer. We know what the themes are. There needs to be a referral. Like I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do radiation therapy. I'm not going to decide what kind of chemotherapy. I'm going to refer to an oncologist. However, I would think in reverse when, when the patient is upset, distressed, patient, family, partners. Then the oncologist or whoever the clinician says, I know who you can talk to about your emotional distress. So those yes. three things I think are vital.
1: Uh, yeah, reading the book, I was just thinking of all the people that I've that I've had in cancer support groups, and I would say perhaps <laughs> the most um, impactful aspect of their cancer treatment. Uh, is actually how the people in the medical system relate to them
2: mm-hmm, 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 uh, mm-hmm.
1: The, I can I can pretty much divide groups into people that felt supported uh, mm-hmm, emotionally mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. dealt with as a human being did much, much, much mm-hmm. better and people yep. who felt anonymous and like they didn't get the information and no one really cared. yeah. Felt yeah. much, much, much worse. No matter how, no mm-hmm. matter what, the health outcome was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it doesn't take more time, actually. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, that's, and that's, that's what that's I like a, to
2: say. That's it's a big not about concern. no time and no money. It really isn't, because I, as patients, we don't expect uh, you know the physician or even the nurse or the we don't expect them to sit down and spend an entire hour. All they have to do is say, "Hey, how are you." How you doing? I think most people will go ah eh, this or that, and and you know we'll respect one another's time and whatever we've got. Um, but you know also in the education, um, particularly in more traditional settings, um, literally it, you know they are warned against being too personal. Don't do yes. this. And I think here again, this could be part of education that that these people who work in more traditional medical set settings. Could be taught how to use their boundaries so that they're not so black and white, so that they feel a sense of assurance that they can set boundaries, still be personal and human and open hearted, and not get enveloped and swallowed up. See what I'm saying? And that's that's learning. You can learn boundaries. That's
1: an interesting point, though, because knowing what those boundaries are, uh, I'm thinking of my wife's uh, oncologist. Uh, and the things that stick with me, he was a wonderful doctor. He kept her alive a long time. The times mm-hmm. when he was human, I still remember vividly. Of course, uh, like the time when uh, she said, "Well, why are you, um, why are you recommending this treatment over that treatment?" and and he said, "Intuition." Uh, oh, that's you know,
2: nice. That that was that a big was, risk for him to say, wasn't? Wow, good
1: for it him. Said, you know, you could make oh, a yeah. case for both. And my intuition says, let's try this. Oh yeah, my God! Yeah, that time when he yeah. said, you know, what, but uh, and yeah. the and the other time was after she died, and I called him, and he cried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuck with me till now, decades later. Yeah. But the and thing it, is, yeah. uh, the third thing that stood out when I was thinking about this was that um, he was finishing up his practice with patients. He was going strictly into research. He, he oh. felt he couldn't, he mm. couldn't handle it. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it was too emotional. Huh? And I, I feel that has to have something to do with support perhaps, or uh, what do you make of that? Because he was very, very gifted at being
2: uh, human. But well, I think I make of that what I was just talking about, you know, the, the collaboration, and also, like, you, we've, we've both said several times in our conversation today, if you, you need to start with yourself, you know, there's just this little section I'm going to read right now, it's like, say I'm talking to a, a physician or someone like him, I'm saying, who listens to you? Where do you take your sadness, anger, and fear Do you feel that you can talk with other clinicians about difficult thoughts or feelings? Are you concerned about being judged? It says, you know, you can help your patients with the emotional distress of cancer and still find ways to include yourself in the process. It's time to break the silence of suffering, difficulty, and despair. And I think again, that if people can feel like it's okay for them to to go into their own grief and you know, fear and angers and, you know, whatever deep emotional state comes up, then they are better able, you know, to, to let it run through them. You know, okay, this was, this was a horrible experience. Like, I think, you know, I've talked that over the last two years, I who thought I was going into survivorship care, which I still do quite a bit of, I had eight people die. And that was the end of my naivete. It's like, oh you know, that's and a so lot. It was a much more palliative, much more palliative care went on than survivor care for a while. Right. So, but I have a way I have good consultation. I value uh, deep exploration. I value that. And so I let myself experience what my grief was about that, you know? Well, and for you, you know, for myself doing grief work,
1: um, and illness work um directly activates my own losses yeah. and and it's a big choice to uh you know there's the up and the down of that right there's yeah. there's yeah. the fact that um I'm so glad to be able to use those experiences and then yeah. there's the fact that sometimes it it hurts Um, So, uh, and I have to, I have to find my ways to support myself in that. So, for you, you've chosen work that directly puts you up against. um, I don't know. Can we say one of the hardest experiences of your life going through cancer? Yes. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So,
1: is that part of it too? Uh, You know, if you haven't confronted that in yourself, you're going to be running, running all over the place trying to.
2: Get out of it. Yes. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and even if you have confronted it, you might still want to run all over it. <laughs> now and then, um, then, huh? You know, now and then it's like, oh, please. Um, yeah. I mean, not only because of my own cancer and dealing with that, but then you know the the sudden loss of my husband. So then I became someone. It wasn't through cancer, but I became someone that understood. You know, the loss of a beloved. And what that's like. And and you're right. I mean, there were times when I was writing this second book, which was really kind of a companion to me during that, that period, initial period. But I would be sitting in rooms with people and with a tremendous amount of grief coming up for them. And there I was in mine. And, um, you know, it was both very profound and sometimes very painful, both at the same time. It's like, you know, sort of both and. Um, yes. I like so, that, both yeah. and. Mhm, mhm-
1: mm-hmm. and i I have to think that 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 is true for many, many clinicians. well, certainly for all the ones that had early loss, uh, I can't yeah. remember the percentages, but they're very high. Um, yeah, and sure. then of course, anyone in the medical profession uh is going to have loss along the
2: way that that yeah. needs
1: processing, yes?
2: yeah, yes, uh-huh, uh-huh, absolutely. So, Absolutely.
1: And so for you, was it just uh, a matter of accepting that that was going to come up for you and making room for it? Or were there specific things that... Uh, you said the book was a companion, which was interesting because I was, I was well aware, and you did mention it in the introduction too that this book was written right after your husband died. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how that might have impacted the book itself, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because there's such an intersection there. You at the very same time you had something you had to care for in yourself. Yes.
2: Yes. Exactly. Well, I think it was a wonderful companion and a focus. I've I've thought uh, with so many different layers. On on one layer, I, I it gave me a tremendously deeper empathy for people who have had losses, devastating losses, and have no focus. You know, maybe they don't. Maybe they maybe they're uh, they don't have work or they don't have family or they're alone, and they're completely alone without any structure around this, you know, a terrific grief. And I really, at this point, pay a lot of attention to people like that. Uh, and I think a lot of attention should be paid to people like that, because the suffering must be, you know, phenomenal. Uh, so I think that on that layer, but, you know, when I, when I look through the book, I think that there's... Um, a rawness. I mean, I do tend to write raw anyway. That's, that's sort of my background. I'm a poet by, (laughs) by, by choice. Uh Uh um, So I think there's a rawness. There's a way that I, in quotes, write raw and kind of really go for the, um, the emotional heart of the matter. And so being so sort of blown open that way, um, you know, sort of in an ironic way, it probably made it a more accessible and more wholehearted book. Because um, you, know, you were because so in it I, yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me. And that exactly. did come through, um, you know, it was kind of like a almost, I hate this word battle, but there was a battle cry quality. Mm-hmm. We have to do mm-hmm. this, you know, kind of feeling to yeah. it, which I appreciated because mm-hmm. it does need to be spoken loudly, doesn't it? Yes. this this need to attend yeah. to ourselves as people that are also caring for others
2: exactly um, and it's, it's I, I think it's it's really it cannot be an elective to take to really pay attention to personal growth valuing ourselves a continued throughout the lifespan of self-care and care of others and collegial collaboration. I don't feel it's an elective. Yeah. I think it's, it's about a required time. course. Required course.
1: <laughs> Yeah, and some I know UCSF has done some work to actually integrate that, but you know it's a day or uh, you know or once a month. It's, right. It's not it's not completely integrated in, but at least there's starting to be talk about that. <clears throat> when we when we get back, I want to talk some in this last section about. Um, the impediments to creating the kind of communities that will support Mm, each other mm -hmm. in this, Mm -hmm. and then, and then talk about our hopes kind of for where this might go for people. Uh, Mm -hmm. And listeners on the second break, of course, just go find us at my, my website is weatheringgrief.com or at my host page. And to find Cheryl Crowder, you can go to www.cherylcrowder.com. And we'll be back after the break.
2: Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: 10 a.m pacific on voice america health and wellness explore the power of natural healing with howard strauss join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies howard's guests include top researchers authors and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work tune in to the power of natural healing with howard strauss mondays at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on the voice america health and wellness channel
2: we're making it easier to listen to the voice america talk radio network wherever you go in addition to listening live you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts discover new talk show personalities add shows to your list of favorites and listen to all of our show archives on demand all from your ios amazon kindle or android device download it from the apple app store amazon or google play and get ready to tune in the voice america mobile app powered by aircast
3: opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness
0: you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones
1: Welcome back. I'm here with Cheryl Crowder, author of Psychosocial Care for Cancer Survivors, and uh, I wanted to start this segment, Cheryl, really, um, we're we're so completely and 100% on the same page about the desperate need for what you're talking about, right. both both human care from provider to patient and human care of the provider by the provider. <laughs> um, right. And, right. <laughs> and I really agree that this collaboration aspect is so important feeling we're supporting each other. But I wanted to talk some about the impediments to that because they're right. kind of mighty in the system. Yes. Um, yes, they and, are. Um, Maybe we could just acknowledge them. Uh, could you talk some about the things you see in the way of
2: adopting Absolutely. this? Absolutely, I could viewpoint. talk about that. And I can also just really quote from people who, again, have have researched and written about this. One is from a, a book called Patient Safety and Quality, and uh, they they write it's a, it's important to point out that fostering a team collaboration environment may have hurdles to overcome. Additional time, perceived lack of autonomy, lack of confidence or trust in decisions of others—again, a mistrust, clashing perceptions, territorialism, lack of awareness of one provider of the education, knowledge, and skills held by colleagues from other disciplines and professions. So, I think in that little in that little snippet there, you see uh, the issues of mistrust and a lack of awareness, um, you know, between providers. Like, oh. You do this work. I do that work. And I think that relates to, uh, again, one of the phrases up top, the territorialism, that there's, there can be a, a lot of power and territory issues that happen. People get very threatened. I see those as major hurdles. And then from another study, uh, professional communication and team collaboration, which is what Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, they say um, common barriers are personal values and expectations. Again, I would say probably that aren't uh, talked about. Personality differences. Number three, I think, is extremely important, hierarchy, because there's a hierarchical system, particularly in traditional settings, that can really wreak havoc with people talking to each other and communicating. Mm. Uh, disruptive behavior. Here's one that I don't think is really... Um, Necessarily has to be a barrier. Again, if it's if it's acknowledged, and that's cultural, and eth- culture and ethnicity. This mm. is, I think, a whole, I mean, we could go. We could have like you know forty hours on this one. A- indeed, need to understand <laughs> different cultures and ethnicities, uh, generational differences, gender, uh, historical interprofessional intra-professional rivalries, again hierarchical things, difference in language. I mean, they're talking here about things that could be. Um, that could be worked with if we can just acknowledge, right. um, yeah, you know, fears there's of diluted professional identity. I mean, it goes on in terms of, you know, what, what gets in the way.
1: Uh, I, I presented last year at UCSF. I'm going to do it again this year um, in this, um Protocol called Practice PT, PC, where mm-hmm. they they bring together practitioners. This is sort of a model for what we're talking about. They're all mm-hmm. in palliative mm-hmm. care, but they're all in different disciplines, and yeah. they're they're part of it for an entire year. And every month there's a different theme. It's a it's a full day a month, and they get release mm-hmm. time to come. And That's the idea fantastic. is. It's really fantastic yeah I, I've yeah. done the grief the grief um, module uh, you know mm-hmm. they have they have somebody come and talk for part of the day uh, mm-hmm. about their discipline so mm-hmm. what's fantastic about it is that they really pay attention to forming the subgroups that you get closer to uh, across mm-hmm. boundaries of professional so yeah. You yeah. know, there'd be a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, all in the same group together. And you can't meet with people an entire day, every month for a year, and not form relationship.
2: Right, uh, right. You
1: know, so to me, right there, you'd have uh, a real head start, uh, that you've had deep and meaningful relationships across those boundaries in some in some way. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like... That's what sort of needs to happen uh, in order to break that down. But I know, I know there can be a lot of resistance uh, and a lot of uh, attachment to hierarchy.
2: Uh, well, even- and it's interesting because I think it all happens in relationship. Everything happens in relationship. I mean, you know, in essence, we're all human beings. We have our own needs and wants and values and so on. But there's some really basic human there's like a basic humanity and and we need you know everything is everything happens in relationship all the way from you know the smallest cell to to whatever collaboration so i agree but i think perhaps what we're talking about in terms of a resistance you know resistance equals fear is that there's a fear of closeness and i see this like across the boards whether or not it's in healthcare wherever but Relationship implies some closeness. And so if there's a fear of of that, then there can be a resistance to really forming uh, a relationship. So again, if we can start to work with, you know, the value of relationship and like your program, like you're saying, which sounds fabulous, people get like, oh, this is really a value to me. Right. And
1: then off you go, Right. And, of course, I, it's not surprising to me that that is happening in a palliative care setting because, right. to me, a right. lot of palliative care uh, organizes itself around relationship. Right. Uh, you know, there's, there's a value for human contact within that discipline. Well, and I,
2: yeah, I think that if that needs to be translated to survivorship care. Yes. Yes. Uh, and you're the right. other- There's a lot more structure for palliative care than there is for survivorship care.
1: <clears throat> I also recently uh, worked with a cancer program at at Zuckerberg Hospital near here, where they are mm-hmm. actually doing a survivorship uh, protocol for every woman that comes out of the breast cancer treatment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, out of breast cancer treatment, there they are put. Immediately into a survivorship program that goes on—I don't know, five or six months. I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm, say—and mm-hmm. they're really paying mm-hmm. attention to continuity, uh, mm-hmm. because of course that's another big subject we could spend another hour on—is how you, right, how, right. you know, how everyone drops off after your treatment. But um, they're really trying to right. attend to that and bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I have some hopeful feelings about the capacity. Oh yeah. Uh, of of the medical system because there is such good research that that this period you're talking about after treatment is a very, a big crisis for most people and so eventually I would, I would imagine that would show up in in what's offered and um, and how it's offered do you think
2: yeah I do believe that and I think particularly it's going to become even more important as Uh, As they say, they call it the silver tsunami, all the people who are, you know, uh, getting older, where um, there's going to be, there's a a great feared silver tsunami coming. And um, so preparing for that and preparing for the care of all these people, and thank God people are surviving. I mean, that's the good news. And now it's just like we just need to adjust, and I I totally believe we can work together. I totally believe that we can get through this and start to talk to each other, you know, conversation by conversation, relationship by relationship, you know, just uh, all by doing that, that, you know, when the system, when the system changes, when even one little part of the system switches, the old system can't hold anymore, and, and the new will begin. I think it's already begun, frankly. So, yeah, there, um, I see time. signs yeah. signs
1: of that, too. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. your, your friend Meredith, for instance, doesn't she uh, do a uh, survivorship program in Seattle? Did I? Well, we, she, we were both on your on, panel, yeah. so I got introduced yeah, to her work. Yeah,
2: she, she was in one. Now uh, She's she's doing some work at University of Washington, but she and I are creating a website called Savvy Survivor. And uh, so we're putting together a, a, a very... Uh, Visitor-friendly <laughs> site for both providers and patients. Um, you know, informational. We're going to have interviews, things like that. So, um, you know, a lot of takeaways and uh, you know, paying attention to um, how you can best um, you know go through your survivorship. And then for the clinicians, okay, what what do your what do your patients need? Or here here's your education. What do you need? And so on. So we've kind of got this double, uh, you know, double. Uh, View of of how this is going to be get rolled out to help people, you know.
1: Uh, I I feel it's important to kind of circle around to why people go into healthcare. They do typically want to be helpful.
3: Yes, they uh, do. so
1: it seems to me once the message can get a, get across, uh, acknowledging someone's emotional pain is helpful (laughs) and acknowledging your own emotional pain is helpful Uh, there that could give us a head start. But uh, I I just wanted to take a minute though with um, how you, because I I run across, you know, basically supportive collegial environments where there's one person who is just doesn't want to do it and, and Mm -hmm. completely Mm -hmm. uh, fights it. How do you deal with that kind of problem where people are exposed, but they but they don't want to do it? <laughs> right. Do we just sort of bypass, or um, have you encountered that yourself?
2: Yes, I think you know what what I have done with it, and you know we of course we can't change anybody else. You can't you know you can't change their state of mind. However, Amen. what I've found is that. Um, just continuing to show up with the message, just showing up and showing up and showing up and in a way, not joining the resistance by sort of becoming uh, adversarial, uh-huh. but trying to become allied. Like, how can we, you know, how can we do this? And usually what I think is at some point, the person who's the most, you know, sort of dug in um, you know, you get to find a sense of like, you know, what, what, what is that? You know, what, what are you concerned about? Um, What do you think is going to happen? You know, just by really just continuing the conversation, like here I am again. Curiosity, huh? Look, here I am, you know, (laughs) and, uh, um, and I think that um, it's just a slow, slow moving train.
1: Well, I guess, I guess uh, one thing that comes to my mind is um, it's an invitation for, uh, I guess, when you encounter someone like that, for, for mm-hmm. us to accept our own reaction, <laughs> you know.
2: Well, right, um, exactly, and, and to try not to react but to respond. You know, not to get all like, well, you know, then it's a exactly. big hierarchical angry fest. And, and that's not going to get anybody anywhere. Um, you know, I think understanding and, and trying to understand different perspectives and coming from that. Meanwhile, not, not saying, well, but I, I not sort of giving up your own beliefs, but, but right. really trying to right. understand and say, look, how, how can we actually have a conversation here? How can we change this dialogue between all of us? Yes. is a really good start.
1: Yes. And that's and that's a good place for us to to wrap it up for today. Just um, that's that's another way of being human, isn't it? I want to thank you yeah. for being here today, Cheryl. It's been great. Oh, thank and you. It's really been I great. I hope people I really will, will um, go check out your work at CherylCrowder.com because I think it's it's really got a lot of uh, potential to go far for all these environments. So thank you. Thank you. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.